And that's really what my book is all about, is that the way to push back against these Chinese government demands and its ideology is for governments to put pressure, to, to, to push back. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. You can find all of our past episodes on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo on your favorite podcast app. In this episode, I'm chatting with Bethany Allen, award-winning China reporter for Axios and author of the book Beijing Rules, China's Quest for Global Influence. I sat down with Bethany in Taipei last November to talk about some of the many important topics covered in her book, including how the Chinese Communist Party exerts control over Chinese companies, as well as the CCP's propaganda reach and online disinformation operations. We also talked about how China ties market access to political acquiescence, her reaction to statements by Irish politicians on China, and much more. So, Bethany, it's uh, great to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So, maybe to uh, preface our discussion, uh, in Ireland and many Western countries, we don't get a lot of coverage in mainstream media of China, unless there's some significant news event. Um, at the same time, our governments and corporations are engaging with China all the time. Uh, in a recent podcast on Taiwan's new indigenous submarine, I spoke about how a Dutch business group had approached the Irish government in the early 90s to set up a submarine manufacturing plant in Cork in Southern Ireland. However, the Irish government blocked the project, even though the unemployment rate in Ireland at the time was maybe 12 to 15 percent, and we could have done with the jobs, uh, because they feared that export of military components to Taiwan would incur diplomatic and economic retaliation from the Chinese Communist Party. The information only came to light under Ireland's Freedom of Information Act, which releases state papers 30 years after the fact. Uh, but it shows that even in the 1990s, China was having a significant influence in Ireland. Uh, earlier this month, Ireland's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin, had a four-day visit to China. And although before the visit he had spoken about de-risking from China, after the visit, he seemed more convinced by China's message that globalization is inevitable. Um, in your book, Beijing Rules, you explore in, in great detail China's quest for global influence and how it has evolved and advanced over the past decades, and also why it has had such impact. Uh, you've coined the term China's authoritarian economic statecraft. So maybe to begin, uh, Bethany, uh, would you be able to give our listeners an overview of what you mean by China's authoritarian economic statecraft? Yeah, uh, authoritarian economic statecraft is the term that I use to describe the way that the Chinese government has created and honed these actually quite innovative forms of economic power to shape the decision-making of governments, companies, institutions, and individuals around the world to bring them more in line with the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. And your book begins around the pandemic and the early days uh, with the virus spreading around the world. It seemed like the Chinese Communist Party at that point had failed in their quest. In fact, you, you quote uh, Howard Markell from the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan, who said in Nature magazine in 2020 that the delay of China to act is probably responsible for this world event. So it seemed like the CCP's domestic legitimacy and global reputation, their whole governance model was poised to crumble at that point. Can you tell us about about the CCP's response to that moment? It's actually quite extraordinary. I think that um, you know, a less uh, effective or less confident regime um, could have really crumbled at that point. But what the Chinese Communist Party decided to do was remarkably ambitious on two fronts. First of all was the domestic public health crisis. Uh, they determined that what they would do was completely eliminate the virus within China's borders. And they were, in fact, successful at that, which was astonishing. Within two months or so, uh, there really were basically no cases, uh, and thus began China's zero COVID policy, which in many respects quickly became the envy of the world. But its, it's second uh, reaction was perhaps even more ambitious, which was to try to stamp out the, the memory and the narrative beyond China's borders that the pandemic even originated within China. So trying to the best of their ability through various means to, to silence 
um, people who talked about the the pandemic originating in Wuhan, and to kind of uh, feed and, and amplify disinformation narratives that cast doubt on China as the origins of the pandemic. And this became, because the pandemic had spread all over the world, this means that everywhere became uh, open to this threat, or they would basically take on anybody anywhere in the world who uh, criticized them. And probably one of the first more prominent uh, critics was Scott Morrison, Australia's uh, prime minister, who uh, asked them about the origins, uh, or asked for a call for an investigation into the origins of the, of the virus. What happened after that? What happened to him and Australia? Yes, he made that call in April 2020, and uh, very shortly thereafter, the Chinese government slapped a bunch of tariffs on a wide swath of Australian um, products that were exported to China, including coal, barley, wine, and and other products. And uh, it took how many years? Are, are they still in place? It took many years to, to uh, have them removed? They have been, uh, this year, lifting some of those. Uh, the last I checked, there were talks to lift the wine tariffs. Uh, I'm not sure what that, where that stands as of today, but a few, as of a few weeks ago, is expected that those would soon be lifted. And uh, the CCP continued to block any scientific investigation into the pandemic from the outset. And, and we, today, we still don't know the origins of, of the COVID pandemic. That's, that's right. Uh, so what we did see uh, and what China was very effective at was blocking World Health Organization um, scientists and investigators from, first of all, entering China, and then second, when they did finally let them do that, uh, blocking them from having free access to all the data uh, and, and other sources that those investigators requested, in addition to destroying quite a bit of, um, of evidence, including samples that were taken from the um, the wet market in Wuhan, which was probably the first uh, the first epicenter, the, the first major spreading event um, in Wuhan. So, you know, the point that we're at in the world is that with the most significant pandemic in a hundred years, we will probably never know exactly how that the new virus came to be, if it was a, a zoonotic crossover event or if it was if it really did have to do uh, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, we'll, we'll probably just actually never know. And you have a whole chapter in the book on the global rush for masks, which I guess one of the key things in there for me is like you know many many countries around the world very fast begun to realize that they were dependent on China for uh, PPE for protective uh, clothing to deal with the pandemic for and for masks right, and China used uh, used this mask diplomacy again to to further their aims right. This was a big leverage for them. Yes, definitely. So, what I mean, it was partially just because the pandemic did begin in China, and then they had we had this effective response. So, as cases um, started to spike in other countries around the world, that that coincided right uh, as China's own cases began to fall. And so, what happened was kind of simultaneously there was this sort of big collective. Um, aha moment or kind of a you know a collective shocking shock shocking realization um, across Europe and the US and other countries that they literally could not produce the the life-saving masks and other protective equipment um, that they needed because over the past number of years they had outsourced that production uh, mostly to China now I want to be clear there was I would say some a bit of conspiracy theorizing in the early months of the pandemic that perhaps China had done this on purpose that the Chinese government had sought to dominate PPE and mask production uh, in case of such an event and I, I think that is really going too far but uh, it, you know but what we did see was that the Chinese government had something that everybody else wanted and needed and this was something that Beijing played for maximum propaganda effect that every time they donated or sold uh, you know made deals to sell masks and PPE to countries um, around the world there was a huge propaganda you know push behind it and you know uh, and they also not, not just from their own uh, diplomats their own announcements and their own you know probably the world's largest um, state-backed propaganda apparatus you know Chinese state media but they also demanded this of the you know, the local side you know make sure your president is there at the tarmac to meet the shipment you know make sure your media outlets are there blah 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 and the result of this was among other things that 
there was a, a pretty widespread um, belief or perception that the Chinese government, like for example in Europe, that the Chinese government was actually was giving more, uh, you know, pandemic aid than any other country. And in fact, that isn't true. You know, if you look at um, donations from the U.S. and from the EU, in many cases, they were actually, you know, countries were actually getting more from the U.S. and the EU. But neither the U.S. nor the EU have a really globe-spanning propaganda apparatus and don't make propaganda demands of the of the countries that they assist. So there was this this perception that the Chinese government really was, um, you know, stepping up uh, to this moment. And and let's be clear, they they were in a way like. It is absolutely amazing what you know Chinese authorities were able to do domestically. They saved probably millions of Chinese people's lives, and and they, that also uh, and they, they you know they also ramped up domestic production of PPE, and that did help save lives abroad as well. And this is a true accomplishment. What is what is concerning is the way that they distorted that for propaganda and also the way that they at times made demands of local countries in exchange for these, uh, you know, for this life-saving um, equipment. And you have also many stories in the book also about how the CCP have infiltrated or tried to control Western companies and thereby control the flow of information. And one of the really interesting stories, which I guess um, relates to a company called Zoom, the video conferencing company, who became uh, very much in demand. Their product became very much in demand around the pandemic, uh, and how you know how they how the blocking of the June Fourth, twenty twenty Tiananmen Square commemoration uh, set the ball rolling on revealing. The the extent of the CCP effort uh, into controlling uh, Zoom. Uh, can you share with us the highlights of what happened there? Uh, yes. So Zoom, it's an American company founded in California in 2011 by a naturalized a Chinese a person born in China who became an American, a naturalized American citizen. Uh, and at the beginning of the pandemic, or before the pandemic began, Zoom had around 10 million daily users. And by April, that number had skyrocketed to 300 million daily users. So that was a big windfall for Zoom. But it was also a big windfall for China's security services. And let me explain why. There's a big difference. So there's, there's one thing that really distinguishes Zoom from like WebEx or Google Meet or some of these other video conferencing platforms. And that is that Zoom has uh, about, or at least at the time, had about 700 members of its R&D team based in, in China. And in their uh, disclosures right before to, to the U.S. government, you know, their mandatory you know, annual disclosures, to the U.S. government right before the pandemic, they acknowledged that the, the, this uh, you know, significant presence they had in China was a risk, posed a, a reputational risk and a political risk to them. But they said that they, it was important to maintain that team there because it was good for their bottom line. It was cheaper operating costs, and that uh, you know, helped, break, helped them just make more money. What happened, right, you know, just to, to back up a little bit, one thing that the Chinese government has very frequently used, uh, a, a kind of lever of control, is uh, denial and access to its economy as a, as a way to get concessions from foreign companies. And that's exactly what happened to Zoom in 2019. Now, they also, at the time, uh, had Zoom as a platform available in the Chinese market for Chinese users. And in September 2019, Chinese authorities blocked that access and uh, demanded that Zoom put together what they called a rectification plan, which would showcase, which would show how Zoom would better implement surveillance and censorship on its platform in China in real time. As part of that uh, rectification plan, the company was also required to appoint a liaison, uh, a Zoom employee whose job was to liaison, to liaise with the Ministry of State Security, which is China's intelligence agency, and its Ministry of Public Security, which is its law enforcement agency. Now, at the time, that wasn't public. Uh, what was public knowledge was that Zoom was blocked in September, and then it was unblocked in November. But the details of that were not publicly known. So... Pandemic. And, and I do want to mention, because uh, Zoom is one of the few uh, companies also of, the, of this nature that was allowed to operate inside China. I mean, yes. Google Meet doesn't. I, I don't know if Cisco WebEx does or the others, but uh, that was one of the few companies. So Chinese people could use it to communicate with uh, their friends and family overseas as well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And that's a key point that, that plays into what happened later. So, you know, 
Fast forward, April 2020, uh, China's Ministry of State Security sees that Zoom users around the world are going from 10 million to 300 million. They start making more and more demands of that Zoom employee who was their liaison. His name is Julian Jean. And uh, what he began doing was trying to surveil and, in fact, shut down meetings that were happening on Zoom beyond China's borders. And we saw this very clearly with uh, the Tiananmen memorials that were held virtually that year, or at the end of May and around June 2020. And Julian Jean was able to, um, in, in some cases, basically subvert Zoom's own internal processes to get information about users outside of China and shut down meetings outside of China and get some accounts suspended. And, and I want to be really clear that what we're talking about here is American citizens in the U.S. using a U.S. company, you know, platform paid for with a U.S. credit card, and their meetings and their accounts were still shut down by the Ministry of State Security in China. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, I was the first journalist to report about this. And uh, after my reporting, I mean, how how do I know about all this stuff? Yeah. You know, I, I did not like, I didn't hack Julian Jean's emails, right? What happened was the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, began uh, an investigation after I did this reporting and they used the powers of government to you know subpoena emails and to subpoena you know get devices uh, and they you know they launched a full investigation of Zoom found out about this and issued a, a lengthy public indictment in December 2020 and also issued an arrest warrant for uh, for Julian Jean um, who's in China and has not been arrested and that is how we learned uh, all about how the Chinese government was using Zoom and using the power of access to its economy to shut down freedoms outside of China's borders. And there there are others as well. I mean, I think maybe our listeners may not be aware of how the CCP has wielded their power against Hollywood to control the speech of, of private corporations in democratic countries. And, and given the wealth and power of these large movie companies, that might be hard to believe for some. Tell us more about how they influence Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, man, this is one of my favorite topics because what it, what, what it really does is show uh, how this has actually been going on for a very long time, long before China's economy was the, you know, the, the Leviathan that it is now. So for 26 years, in 26 years, Hollywood, no major Hollywood studio has produced a major film that crosses any of the Chinese Communist Party's red lines for 26 years. So the last time that happened was 1997. There were two films, two major films, uh, that showed Tibet in a very compassionate light, that, that portrayed Tibet as and Tibetans as a victim of Chinese military aggression and um, occupation. And those were Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt, made by Columbia TriStar, and Kundun, which was um, a portrayal of the life of the Dalai Lama uh, by uh, Disney and Martin Scorsese. And after those films were made, the Chinese government blocked access um, to the Chinese market for Columbia TriStar and Disney. This was like an earthquake across Hollywood. But what is so astonishing is that in 1997, the Chinese economy was just one-tenth the size of the U.S. economy. But even more importantly, the Chinese box office itself was, itself was negligible. There was no money to be made in the Chinese market at that time. So what gives? Why, you know, why was Hollywood willing to, to censor itself so completely? For, for a tiny market, because it was, it was all on the promise of future wealth. At the time, and you know, certainly all the way up till today, executives look at the 1.3, 1.4 billion, or whatever it was in 1997, 1.2 billion Chinese people, and they just see dollar signs. You know, soon, soon the Chinese market will make us all rich. And so on the promise of future wealth, America's probably greatest instrument of soft power projection censored itself and continues to do so up to the present moment. And I'll just add to that, this kind of censorship is very insidious because most of the time there's nothing to be reported about it. There's no, there's no um, you know, smoking gun of a Chinese official had a meeting with an important producer in Hollywood and told him to censor. That doesn't happen. What happens is it starts in people's minds from, from screenwriters 
who know that if they want to stand a chance of anyone buying their screenplay and, and, and turning it into a movie, they cannot write about human rights violations in China or the growing power of the Chinese military in a, you know, in a sort of a scary sense or... Um, you know, the, the, the way that the Chinese government has been, um, you know, suppressing, like, t um, you know, Muslims in Xinjiang or Hong Kongers or Taiwanese or any of these things. Uh, and so th these never get made into screenplays, which never get bought, which never get made. So it's just kind of an emptiness, just kind of a silence. And we saw, like, even the su subtle things, like, I remember Top Gun, the movie, yeah. the original one had a Taiwanese flag on the back of uh, Tom Cruise's jacket. The remake didn't, right? Oh, yes. And don't you know that that was absolutely intentional? And that's because one of the many tools, you know, I write about how it being how the Chinese government has been quite innovative in the these very sort of selective but laser targeted tools for, you know, access and denial to the Chinese market. One of them is, you know, what, what are um, in, in a way that appear to be like nationalist consumer boycotts in China. And there have been so many examples of this over the, especially over the past 10 years with the rise of Chinese social media, that, you know, some users on like Weibo or whatever, you know, WeChat or whatever, will, you know, they'll screenshot a scene in a movie or, you know, something like this and, and you know, put a, a big red circle around something that offends the feelings of the Chinese people, you know, so like, a, you know, a small little Taiwanese flag emblem on somebody's jacket, it would be, you know, just the perfect, you know, opportunity for this. It goes viral online, people get upset, there's, you know, calls for a domestic boycott, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm not saying that those, that, that those people's feelings are not real, but rather it's, you know, that the Chinese government has, since the early 1990s, implemented a patriotic education campaign that, you know, China, the Chinese government, especially under Xi Jinping, has really fanned the grassroots nationalism in China. Also, the Chinese internet is very, very heavily censored, and only things that are approved by the government are allowed to go viral. And also, the Chinese government has actually been quite amazing at turning nationalist content into stuff that can actually, you know, kind of go viral naturally. And so they can they can turn this on and off like a switch, this you know, grassroots nationalism, and use it as a kind of a fire hose to aim it at foreign companies um, in a way that doesn't even appear like it's the government that's doing it. And so, you know, foreign companies or Hollywood studios or whoever have to be careful not just of not, not offending Chinese censor themselves, but also the Chinese people. And speaking of that challenge that Western companies face with doing business in China, particularly tech companies, um, there's a very interesting quote in your book from uh, Jacob Helberg, who previously led Google's internal efforts to combat foreign interference and worked briefly on uh, Project Dragonfly, uh, Google's abandoned uh, Chinese search engine project. He said, the dilemma that companies like Zoom, Google, and Apple are facing is how to be a company that has company values and then trying to build products that are value agnostic. It's really hard to articulate and defend that. And it's even harder over time when you try to gerrymander the same product where you make one version for one market and another version for the other market. What happens eventually is that, you, is that one system wins over the other. And I suppose you end up with just one product and someone's values uh, rule, right? T tell us more about what you've observed in that area. Oh, I love that quote by, by Jacob Helberg. I think he's brilliant, and of course that's why I included that quote um, in the book. And, and Google itself is an incredible example of this because, uh, you know, Google, to its credit, actually pulled out of the Chinese market in, I believe it was 2009, because uh, the Chinese government was making, uh, you know, more and more stringent censorship requests of Google's search engine. The companies that you know put their hands up said, we're not going to do it, we're just going to have Google Hong Kong. So they pulled out. However, a few years down the line, it seemed like they regretted that decision. And so um, there was uh, back around, I don't know, it was 2018 or so, right around there, uh, it, you know, we learned that Google was secretly, and I mean very secretly, creating a bespoke pre-censored search engine for the Chinese market called Project Dragonfly. And when I say secretly, what I mean is uh, the people in charge of this project were subverting the companies were and circumventing the company's own internal ethics uh, procedures and guidelines in order to create this 
this censored search engine. It was only uh, pretty, you know, brave internal company whistleblowers who leaked knowledge of this to the press. Uh, that's the only reason we uh, learned about it before the project was launched. And even after that, it took about a whole year of really intense pressure um, from, you know, media pressure, company pressure, uh, employee pressure, I should say, uh, pressure from the U.S. government and lawmakers uh, for Google to renounce, or to, you know, basically permanently suspend this project. Uh, this um, search engine, and and you you I suppose the the big point here is that you know most companies are just driven. They want to maximize their profits. They are looking for these opportunities. They uh, play by the rules or the law, uh, but China has found a way to coerce them uh, using the 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 market as bait, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think that. You know, the, the principles of neoliberalism are really nice on paper. They sound really good. Like, we'll just, you know, free markets uh, and democracy aren't just related. That You know, it's not that, you know, free markets relate to democracy. You know, neoliberalism's principles are that neoliberalism and democracy or, you know, free markets and democracy are the same thing. That if you have, you know, if you can sell your product, you know, here, there or anywhere, that is, in fact, democracy. And thus, we don't need to have and we should not have legal limits on what you know companies can do or we should have as, as few uh, limits as possible on what companies can do and that will spread not just prosperity but it will also spread democracy that that would be perhaps great maybe that would work uh, if we did not have a situation in which a foreign government had learned how to distort those markets or take control of those markets by linking profits to authoritarian, essentially to authoritarian values, I you know I like to think what would Milton Friedman uh, have thought? You know he you know he he wrote uh, you know one of the fathers of neoliberalism and he wrote this very famous essay. Uh, you know, back 40 years ago called the social responsibility of companies is to increase profits for their share for their shareholders. Well, what if, you know, what would he have thought if the way that companies have to increase profits for their shareholders uh, is by pushing authoritarianism? What, what do you do in that kind of a situation, right? And I think that that points out a fundamental flaw in the way that the US and many nations around the world have organized not just their economies but also their societies and their and their politics which is to say uh, that you know having essentially removed a lot of the political and moral guardrails around economic behavior uh, and that's a void uh, a kind of a political and moral void that the Chinese government has come in and filled with its own authoritarian guardrails on economic behavior. And we'll maybe talk a little bit later about maybe what countries can do to protect themselves against that. But I do want to also touch on, uh, you know, another aspect of China's behavior, uh, what they call civil-military fusion, a policy to remove barriers between the country's civilian and military sectors so that technology advances are shared across sectors. And this policy has been pursued since the 1990s. And um, you say Huawei is one of the most prominent examples of this strategy. How so? I think that, that uh, if you want to talk about military civil fusion as it relates to technology companies, there have been some laws that have been passed in China over the past decade that have been very effective at, um, you know, at fusing advances in the private sector with what is available to the public sector. And those laws include China's National Intelligence Law of 2015 and its Cybersecurity Law of 2017. And those laws, among other things, require that Chinese individuals and entities uh, must, upon request by Chinese law enforcement and intelligence agencies, provide information, data, and assistance, and keep that assistance a secret. So any capability or data set or information that private Chinese companies have access to they're required by law to provide those services to the Chinese government upon request. So, you know, it, it's not so much a question of are Chinese CEOs unethical or how, do they have contracts with the Chinese government or have they sold out in some way. It's that they, there is no legal, there's essentially no legal mechanism for them to not do that. They have to. They have to lie under law 
if they are asked if they have done this or not. And so, you know, something, uh, a company like Huawei, just on paper, presents an extraordinary national security and information risk to any country that uses its technology to, for example, build 5G networks. Because if Huawei is running these, you know, uh, like running 5G networks or other sensitive um, information infrastructure, they are required upon request by the Chinese government to do whatever the Chinese government wants with that to the best of their ability. Now, the response that some uh, democratic countries have taken is to try to build firewalls, you know, between uh, their sensitive systems and any Chinese company that that may, you know, be uh, overlapping with that in some way. Uh, you know, as someone who isn't a technical specialist, I can't speak to whether or not that is ever effective. But I know that a growing number of countries have come around to the U.S. position, which is that Huawei presents too great of a risk to allow it to have any form of access to sensitive information infrastructure. Uh, Huawei have denied being close to the Chinese government. Um, but there have, been some ins- there have been some examples of, for example, when uh, Meng Wanzhou was released and returned to China. Um, the reception she got and the welcome she got uh, was a state welcome back. Um, so, I mean, are there, there must be other connections as well or other evidence that suggest uh, uh, Huawei's uh, close relationship with the Chinese government. Yeah. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter whether or not Huawei is close to the Chinese government. Under law, it still has to do what the Chinese government asks of it under certain circumstances. So it doesn't matter. But with that aside, it's very obvious that Huawei is close to the Chinese government. And you you know, you give the example of the CFO, Meng Wanzhou, who was arrested in Canada under an extradition request from the U.S. government for uh, alleged sanctions violations uh, relating to Iran. What happened immediately thereafter was that the Chinese government detained two Canadian citizens in China. And those Canadian citizens were held exactly as long as Meng Wanzhou was. And as soon as, you know, she was, I, fit, I forget exactly how long she was detained in Canada, uh, around a couple of years, maybe a little longer, right, around, around that amount. Um, that is exactly how long the Canadian citizens were detained as well. This is the case of the two Michaels. The two Michaels, right. Michael Koverg and Michael Spavor. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's very, very clear that the Chinese government has Huawei's back and is also very, very comfortable um, uh, flagrantly violating international norms uh, and laws in order to, to support and back up Huawei whenever needed. Another area that you discuss is that of sister city twinning, uh, which has become highly politicized by China. And many people may think this is, you know, um, harmless uh, engagement, exchange of cultural views and so on. Uh, But you discuss in the book how, you know, there are now United Front Work Department members are engagement with the sister city twinning committees. Um, And under this organization, under their sister city twinning organization, Shanghai used to be twinned with Prague, but in January 2020, Shanghai canceled their sister city relationship with Prague. What happened? Uh, Yes, so in the past uh, three years or so, the Czech Republic has greatly increased its unofficial ties with Taiwan and has strengthened those ties dramatically, has really led Europe in doing so. Prague has established a sister city relationship with Taipei. The Czech Republic uh, uh, now sends regular delegations of officials and lawmakers to Taiwan. It has welcomed current Taiwanese officials to to the Czech Republic. Uh, The Czech Republic was also um, the First, the the leading country in Europe to designate Huawei as a a serious national security concern when it was not popular in Europe to do so. So the Czech Republic really has been a thorn in Beijing's side. Uh, but, But to your point, you know, sister city relationships are wonderful and I strongly support them. And I support you know, um, countries around the world, cities around the world having those relationships with Chinese cities. I think there is almost nothing more important in the world than maintaining genuine people-to-people relationships. But what has happened is that the Chinese government is abusing those relationships, those sister-to-city relationships. You just gave the example of, uh, you know, retaliating against uh, Prague for independently doing what, what cities have the right to do. 
uh, you know, which is their own unofficial uh, relations with any anyone else or any other you know, group of people in the world. And that, you know, specifically when it comes to Taiwan, we've seen that over and over again is, and I, I lay this out in my book, numerous examples of Chinese sister cities retaliating uh, or threatening their American counterparts because of uh, potential or existing relationships with cities in Taiwan. And, you know, I want to be clear that this happens because the Chinese sister cities, unlike their counterparts in the U.S. or other democracies, are directed by a, a, a central organization in Beijing, which is under the uh, direct oversight of the United Front Work Department, which is the Chinese Communist Party's uh, a Chinese Communist Party office a bureau dedicated to um, amplifying support for the party and marginalizing dissent for its policies. And so you have a situation in which, at times, Chinese sister city um, official or officials with Chinese uh, sis- in Chinese sister city relationships are, you know, very heavily incentivized to act in this way. And this is an abuse of what sister city relationships are intended to be, which is genuine, non-political exchange between human beings, not between central governments. And I suppose if the sister city program with China is totally politicized the, by, uh, by the CCP, we can assume the same applies to Confucius Institutes, uh, which according to Wikipedia claim to be public educational and cultural promotional programs funded and arranged by the Chinese International Education Foundation, uh, a government-organized, non-governmental organization under the Ministry of Education for the People's Republic of China. <laughs> I just love, I love Gongos, government-organized, non-governmental organizations. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, there's a bunch of those in the UN, by the way, that um, try to block, uh, you know, real NGOs that are critical of the Chinese government's policies. Um, again, in theory, I love the idea of the Chinese government uh, funding or some people in China funding Chinese language education around the world. I love that. I loved studying Chinese. I love using it. Uh, language study is something that many populations don't have access to at all. And the U.S. government and other governments don't um, sufficiently fund that, especially for underprivileged populations. However, again, same issue here. The Chinese government abuses Confucius Institutes or abuses the idea behind them by baking censorship into the system. So Confucius Institutes are run by China's Ministry of Education and uh, in partnership with the local schools. And, um, you know, essentially the education that happens in these classrooms cannot include uh, free discussion of Taiwan, free discussion of Tibet, free discussion of Hong Kong. It's impossible. Uh, and we also know uh, th- that's w- that's one kind of problem is the censorship that is baked in. And it is my personal opinion that that kind of censorship has no place on an American university campus. We, you know, we wouldn't tolerate that uh, in, you know, from, from uh, funding from other sources. We shouldn't tolerate it from the Chinese government. Uh, but there's another another reason for concern, which is a little bit different, which is that there are instances of Confucius Institute staff kind of using that relationship to try to extend that censorship outside of Confucius Institute classrooms to the rest of campus and putting pressure on university staff and officials to maybe not hold certain events on campus because it could potentially jeopardize that relationship. For example, a number of years ago, there was a university that was planning to invite the Dalai Lama to come and give a talk, and Confucius Institute Chinese staff complained to university administrators about that. I believe the talk was canceled. That's obviously clearly inappropriate. So those are, you know, those are the concerns. Um, I, I do think, at least if you read U.S., some U.S. Uh, news outlets uh, and, you know, hear statements from some U.S. lawmakers, there have been concerns expressed about the Confucius Institutes, which I think are not not serious concerns. They're not legitimate concerns that the institutes may be involved in espionage, this kind of thing. That's just not what they do. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about uh, Chinese disinformation and disinformation campaigns. Um, Recently, I read uh, a report from the Pew Research Center. Uh, They published data that shows roughly one-third of U.S. adults under 30 regularly scroll through TikTok for news. A 
55% increase since 2020. I'm assuming figures are similar elsewhere. Uh, what do you make of this? And, and have you come across examples of CCP influence on TikTok or its parent ByteDance? Okay, so ByteDance is a Chinese company in China, and it is fully integrated into the Chinese uh, censorship architecture. All Chinese laws apply to ByteDance, uh, you know, uh, which is, as we've already discussed, uh, providing any kind of data or assistance upon demand and being required by law to keep that assistance a secret. So that, so TikTok's owner is required to do that or else it will cease to exist and its executives would go to jail and their families would disappear. So let's be super clear about exactly what ByteDance is or what it, what pressures it is under. Um, I am deeply concerned about TikTok as well and I'm very glad that there has been intense scrutiny of it. Um, Imagine, you know, let's say in the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election, when we now know there were, were uh, very intense uh, and at times successful efforts by the Russian government to use Facebook and other American social media platforms to um, foment uh, division and chaos and disruption in our own domestic political debates. Imagine if the Ru if Rush if uh, the Russian government had owned or if Russian citizens owned Facebook and YouTube uh, and Twitter, how much how much more severe that would have been. And so, you know, the the, the problem, the concerns about TikTok are are so much more complicated than. What do you mean it's dangerous? It's just a bunch of dancing videos. That that has nothing to do with it. It's uh, it's that it potentially gives. Uh, the Chinese government a lever to to influence, if it wishes, at crucial moments, our public debates and our public narratives. That doesn't mean it's happening all the time. It means it's a it's a potential that could happen. And TikTok's European headquarters is in Ireland, and uh, the concerns from the EU on these same things we've been talking about, uh, one of the uh, solutions TikTok has proposed is to store all European data in Europe. But that doesn't seem like it will affect the algorithm, for example, which drives the content and the influence, right? Yeah, I mean, we do know of examples of um, content that would be viewed by the Chinese government as being politically sensitive, being censored from TikTok. Um, and I, I think it... I think it's a question that we haven't really answered. What does it mean, you know, for a company to store all of its data in Europe um, if that company then is given a kind of do or die demand from the Chinese government, uh, you know, to, to then transmit that data back to Beijing? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think that TikTok in that way is in, a, is in a unique position. And it has been put into that unique position because of this pressure from, um, from, from both governments, right? It's kind of caught in the middle, back to this quote by, by Jacob Helberg, you know, it's caught in the middle. And I, and I think that the best thing that we can do is to continue to put intense scrutiny and intense pressure on TikTok. And that's really what my book is all about, is that the way to push back against these Chinese government demands and its ideology is for governments to put pressure on, uh, to, to, to push back. Not just through consumer, uh, you know, like hashtag campaigns, but through actual government regulation. You are pretty critical in the book on the U.S. in terms of the part they played in enabling Beijing. You say that while Beijing's ambition to shape the world in its own image arose from the party's logic, the United States is deeply complicit in creating the conditions that have allowed China's authoritarian economic statecraft to flourish. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it goes back to what I was talking earlier about the way that we structure and regulate our domestic and international economic behavior. Um, you know, specifically what I mean is the rise of what I choose to call neoliberalism um, under Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and, you know, now has been, you know, widely implemented around the world, which is which is what? It's deregulation, you know, privatization, um, fr free trade, and, and overall this belief that Essentially, CEOs can do no wrong. You know, just uh, regulate them very, very lightly. As long as they're making money, they're doing what's right. This belief has neutered the power of democracies to protect their own values and to protect the space for those values to flourish. And it has, for years, if not decades, prevented a stronger reaction from 
you know, from American politicians and American society to what we've been seeing from China, because in part it blinded us to what the Chinese government was doing, that it was using the power of markets to transmit authoritarianism around the world. There was this belief, again, that, you know, widely, widely accepted in the U.S. and, and still is, that um, markets and economic behavior is, is a bridge you can build by which you can transmit democracy. And we didn't realize that that bridge could also be used, you know, for this kind of for autocratic systems to, to, to also come the other direction. We talked earlier about China's adopting Russia's disinformation playbook. And we also hear these days more about China deepening its relations with Russia. Um, there's that infamous quote of what she said to Putin on his last visit to Moscow. He said, now there are changes that haven't happened in 100 years. When we are together, we drive these changes. And China is also entertaining dictators from countries like North Korea, Syria, Iran. There's some speculation of an authoritarian axis. Is this a real alliance or more like some gathering behind a common dislike of the US or Western democracy? What do you think? I think that's, I don't think there's a distinction between those two things. Um, I, this is not an alliance in, you know, like a dictionary definition of the term, but is it a kind of an axis? Oh, absolutely. You know, Russia, China are revisionist powers. They share the common goal of eroding um, you know, liberal human rights norms and enshrining their right to do whatever they want domestically and to prevent other countries from interfering in what they view as their right to do whatever they want domestically. And this has the uh, potential to reshape many of the institutions that were formed after World War II, uh, you know, what we refer to as sort of the, the liberal rules-based order, the imperfect as it is, to reshape that according to uh, these, according to authoritarian desires, basically to make the world safe for authoritarianism. This is uh, very clear. Uh, Rush, uh, you know, Putin and Xi say this. They just say it, you know, clearly and openly. And they have uh, increasingly not hidden their desire to bring more and more governments into this kind of umbrella. And a good example of this is the recent expansion of BRICS to include, uh, I think, six additional countries, uh, none of which are democracies. And we, we see it in many different kinds of initiatives. And so, for example, the Chinese government has a, a clear goal, not of replacing the US dollar as the world's reserve currency, but as making the RMB, or perhaps even in the future, the digital RMB, as an acceptable substitute on, at times in order to evade US sanctions. And since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the uh, number, the, the amount of RMB uh, transactions that are happening inter internationally has risen dramatically, for example. So, you know, we see initiatives like this aimed at weakening the power of the U.S. sanctioned state, weakening international human rights law mechanisms and norms, um, and rewriting norms such as the idea that political asylum, asylum should be enshrined and respected. Uh, I think that both China and Russia would prefer for there to be no such thing as political asylum at all. We have some left-wing politicians in Ireland who, in response to criticisms of the CCP, repeatedly say that China hasn't dropped a bomb on anyone in the last 40 years and that we should stop demonizing China. What do you say to that point of view? Well, they're currently committing a, an ongoing genocide in Xinjiang. Uh, they're, but they're not using bombs to do it. They're using uh, other methods that doesn't make it better. They operate the world's uh, largest forced uh, system of uh, forced labor for inmates. Uh, they, they imprison the, the highest number of journalists in the world. You know, the list goes on and on and on of the lives that have been destroyed by the Chinese government's authoritarianism. I think that evil can come in many forms, and it can come in the form of bombs, it can come in the form of drones, or it can come in the form of... of of, of, of such draconian domestic restrictions that people's lives are ruined. So final question to, to wrap up then. Is there any light, you think, at the end of this tunnel? Are China just going to keep on exerting their authoritarian economic statecraft? And maybe just to preface that, I had a few, a few points. You say neoliberalism's resistance to democ democratic intervention in economies that continues to stymie robust action to counter Beijing. Um, and also uh, you say that it's because China's economy is so huge 
uh, that this authoritarian economic statecraft works, but it runs the risk of, of becoming weaker if it's used too much. And I wonder if we are seeing that now with uh, companies moving out of China, countries being more cautious on trade deals, the EU and the US uh, taking action on de-risking and so on. What do you think? It is certainly the case that in the past three years, the Chinese government seems to perhaps have committed a bit of an overreach. Uh, I, I think that they dialed it up too much. Uh, and indeed, as you say, we see now that the Trump administration's pivot to a tougher China policy that began in 2018, and which was at the time viewed as a, a radical, very Trumpian thing, has now been pretty widely accepted throughout democracies, even in, in Europe. And, you know, many European um, government officials, lawmakers, and populists totally hated Trump. So it's very clear that the world has, has shifted in its view of China. However, uh, Beijing is aware of that. And in the past year, we've seen this extensive charm offensive by Xi Jinping, uh, where he's using softer language, trying to, uh, you know, balance the needs of still appearing very, very tough and nationalistic, uh, but but also trying to ameliorate some of these harms, some of the, some of the damage that's been done to China's relationship with uh, democracies around the world. Do we still have to worry about China's authoritarian economic statecraft? Absolutely. The Chinese economy is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, by, by some measures, uh, such as purchasing power parity, it's already equal or has even surpassed the you know, US GDP. There are immense fortunes to be made and lost inside of China, as long as that is true, and as long as the Chinese government continues on its current path, uh, this is something that we still have to worry about. And you, at the beginning, uh, in our conversation earlier, you mentioned Ireland's foreign minister's recent trip to Beijing, where he initially came into it with some with somewhat tougher language, talking about de-risking, came out of it talking about how Xi Jinping had said, uh, you know, globalization is unstoppable. What does that mean, globalization is unstoppable? Let's read between the lines. What Xi Jinping conveyed to him was, if you want to make money, if you want to have economic prosperity, you have to have access to the Chinese market or China's investments and capital abroad. And to do that, you have to play by our rules. Xi Jinping isn't talking about globalization. Globalization will, will happen or not happen, you know, regardless of what the Chinese government does. What Xi Jinping is saying is globalization under our rules is unstoppable. And that is what, uh, you know, his impression from his trip was. Okay. Well, that's a great point to end on. Uh, Bethany, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's Bethany Allen, China reporter for Axios and author of the book Beijing Rules, speaking with me in Taipei last November. My sincere thanks to Bethany for sharing her valuable insights and taking the time to talk with us on Perspectives with Nilo. Beijing Rules is a fantastic read, with many more compelling examples of China's authoritarian economic statecraft. We've placed a link to the book in the Dive Deeper section of our blog, as well as some additional information on the topics covered in our interview. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd really appreciate a like, share or follow on our social media pages, which are linked on our blog site at pwnilo.com. And thanks in advance for your support. But that's where we leave it for now. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slavonik Spanakt.